I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part 49 in the series, The Gospel of Matthew. Facing rejection and grief, Jesus escapes from the cacophony of his work to find a quiet place and be alone. When he gets there, he is greeted not by silence, but by need. What can we, as modern disciples of Jesus, learn from one strange story of how Jesus turns a little bit of food into a lot more? you have your Bible, go ahead and open to Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. In the, uh, the winter of 2013, my dad was dying. He'd caught the flu while visiting me in Oregon, and he would spend weeks in an intensive care unit before flying back to his home in Georgia, where he would die unexpectedly in his sleep shortly thereafter. And simultaneously, I was navigating another major evolution in my adult life. Abby and I had had our first kid that same winter. Um, And so every night, I'd come home from work for a moment, only to turn around and head to the hospital for a while and then come back home again. And one place was filled with despair and encroaching dread all the time and panic. But the other place was warm and full of new life and excitement. And love was in both places, one bittersweet, uh, another just sweet. And it was a season both lovely and lonely. It was soul-lifting and soul-crushing at the same time. And need was everywhere. Several years after that, uh, another winter, my wife Abby's dad was dying. We had two kids now. Beck was nearly four. Isla was one. And like I had done years prior, Abby was now dividing her time between two places. She'd spend a lot of time at home and then a lot of time at her parents' house where her dad was on hospice care. And it was another season set in the shadow of encroaching death. There were painful memories that were drudged up every day to keep the new pain company. I'd often fall asleep alone praying for my wife. And then each and every morning, both kids would come crawling up onto the bed all bright smiles and need, where's breakfast, what are we doing today, wake up, Dada, wake up, Dada, you know that thing. And in those moments, because I love them so deeply, my stress and my grief would be eclipsed by compassion, and I was eager and happy to care for them. And something similar actually happens to Jesus in the story of Matthew. Now, Matthew's first century biography of Jesus is a work of literary sophistication. On that much, scholars agree, whether they follow Jesus or not. Um, But it wasn't customary in the ancient world to populate biographies with lengthy stanzas of flowery, poetic prose. So it mostly just records events. And we learn a lot in the simplicity of the writing. Last week, right in the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, there's this strange and upsetting story. It's the only story in Matthew not to include Jesus. And we learn about the fate of Jesus' friend and cousin, John the Baptist. Now, in the beginning, Matthew's gospel was really exciting. It was moving. It was soul-stirring because you get Jesus teaching, and you get Jesus healing, and you get Jesus casting out demons, and Jesus caring for the poor and the marginalized and those pushed to the edges of society. And now we're reading, Jesus gets rejected. Jesus gets rejected. Jesus gets rejected. And then suddenly, John, the prophet whose whole purpose is to prepare the way for the Messiah, is beheaded in prison because of loose talk during a drunken, incestuous lap dance. 
It's shameful, it's grotesque, and you're thinking this is what happens to the promised prophet sent specifically to prepare the way for Jesus? And from there, Matthew cuts back to Jesus abruptly, and that's where our story begins this evening. So let's read from Matthew chapter 14, beginning with verse 13. You guys all right? You ready? Great. Matthew 14, verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, meaning what had happened to John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. That word um, solitary can actually be translated as wilderness or even desert or deserted place or even a lonely place. This is Matthew's shorthand for Jesus practicing silence and solitude when one gets away from noise, other people just to sit in the quiet alone with God. And the story goes on. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed, he saw a large crowd. (laughs) Now, pay attention, because Jesus has specifically gone to be away, and with good reason. And he shows up to find there's already a crowd of people waiting for him. So what will he do? When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. The disciples say, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. Now, interestingly, um, the feeding of the 5,000, as it's often called, is the only miracle of Jesus to appear in all four Gospels, which means that this one is really special and really unique. So let's try to figure out why. Now, I began this teaching just a few minutes ago with an anecdote from my own life about loneliness and grief. And tonight's story begins this way. When Jesus heard what had happened to John the Baptist, he withdrew by by boat privately to a solitary place. And when you read um, the biographies of Jesus' life, it becomes abundantly evident that Jesus is a tremendous believer in uh, alone time. He doesn't call it that, because that always sounds like a rude way of describing it. But historically, we've recognized that what Jesus is doing is the spiritual discipline of silence and solitude, when one gets away from distraction and people and noise and sits in silence with God. And I think this is actually noteworthy here, because there are times when Jesus is all about being with other people and for extended long bouts uh, uh, where he really gives of himself to be with others. He dives headlong into his work and into crowds and into togetherness. He's really into parties and dinners and celebrations and quality time and fun. But here, he's heard that his cousin, his friend, not to mention a noteworthy prophet of God, has been decapitated in prison. And Jesus is human, so he wants to be alone. But remember, Jesus is the greatest example of true spirit-filled humanity. So it's not just because he's like moody and depressed. He knows that being alone is good, that it's healthy, that it's certainly appropriate in the circumstances. 
But, alas, Jesus' time alone is to be short-lived, if not, not at all. Um, like my kids climbing on me in the morning, unaware of my stress or pain or grief, the crowds go to Jesus with their need. And notice in Matthew's language, it says, the crowds followed him. Now, ordinarily in the story, the crowds are distinct from the disciples. Those two groups are usually separated. And when I say disciples, I'm not just talking about the 12, the apostles. Jesus had hundreds, if not thousands, of disciples or apprentices, followers. But typically, the crowds are those that are on the periphery. They're listening but not in. You know, they're curious but they're distant. And here, in a long line of rejection and opposition, the crowds of all people follow Jesus, at least to the other side of the lake. And Jesus had gone to be alone when the people hound and crowd him. He's moved not to frustration nor dismissiveness, but compassion. More on that in just a bit. So Jesus is doing what Jesus does. He's healing the sick. He's spending time amongst those in need. And eventually the day has worn on and his disciples are like, we need to wrap this thing up. So they say to him, man, this is a remote place. It's already getting late. You should send these people away. They need to get dinner. Let's be practical. And there seems to be a a hint of impatience in the language, if not disrespect. Um, Notice the disciples are essentially telling Jesus what to do. And they don't preface it with their usual title, respectful title for Jesus, which is Lord or Rabbi. It's very frank. Look, we've been at this for a while now. Too many people here. Uh, They won't go home and eat if you don't tell them to. So you need to tell them to get out of here. And then things get really weird. So Jesus says, no, they don't need to leave. You give them some food. And the disciples are, perhaps understandably, baffled. Uh, One scholar I read noted a hint of sarcasm in their answer. So they show Jesus what they have, which is five hunks of bread and two fish, and they're like, this is it. We're going to feed all these people with this. And notice Jesus doesn't respond unkindly. Uh, What does he say? Look down at the story in response to the, the number of food or what they have. What does Jesus say? Bring it here. So despite their rudeness and their pragmatism, their desire to wrap things up, Jesus just says, bring it here. And remember, this story is set in a collection of what scholars call rejection narratives. If you remember, it starts with Jesus going back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he's rejected there. And there it's because of rationalism. So they're like, we know this dude. He was just here. He can't possibly be the long-awaited king of Israel. His mom is right there. He's one of us. Then you get John the Baptist, whose entire mission was to prepare the way for Jesus. He's rejected and thrown into prison. Jesus is then rejected by political power, a ruler called Herod, um, based on, in this case, sensualism. So he's drunk, he's overflowing with lecherous desire for his own niece in the story, and he has John the Baptist beheaded. He cuts off the kingdom message in that sense. And tonight's story includes Jesus own disciples throwing a wrench in things because they're compelled by perhaps the most understandable of defects, which is realism. The disciples are prepared to obstruct the work of Jesus or at least stunt it based on pragmatism. And notice Jesus isn't cruel. He isn't unkind. He invites the disciples to participate in resolving the problem. And though we can read them as doubtful or maybe even rude, Jesus uses what they have anyway. And through that, something incredible happens. Everyone eats. In fact, more than 5,000 people ate because Matthew, who is at least partly a product of his patriarchal society, does not bother counting the women and children. And that seems like a bummer, um, but look at it this way. God, we know, allows 
um, the influence of Matthew's culture to come through in the writing. Um, God, in other words, doesn't censor his human author in that sense anyway. But notice, just because Matthew is influenced by a culture that devalues women and children, that certainly doesn't mean that Jesus devalues women and children because Jesus provided food for the women and children that Matthew didn't count. In other words, Jesus counted them. Hauerwas says it like this, that women and children are not counted may indicate they had less status than men, but such is not the case in the new Israel constituted by Jesus' body and blood. Jesus does not count those he feeds. He does something far more important. He feeds them. But either way, reading this is problematic for you and me because ordinarily a few pieces of bread and fish can't feed thousands of people. Um, I spent uh, many years traveling the world as a musician and often in a, a contract that one signs with a promoter to secure a booking. Food for the talent, as they call it, is included in the package. It's a beautiful thing. One of the perks of the job. One of the only perks of the job. And problem is, uh, if the contract is at all vague and you have no, you have no idea what you're getting, uh, more often than not, you find yourselves like staring down at a single small Little Caesars box intended for like 10 people. Um, and they want to feed their family with it and everything, too. So I remember once, this is a true story, this exact thing happening, um, as it did hundreds of times, and the promoter in question couldn't help but acknowledge how absurd it seemed. He was, like, in the room when we got there, and we were hungry, and we're like, hey, the, you know, there's food in the contract. Is there going to be dinner? He's like, oh, actually, yes. And he points down to, like, a single box of pizza, and there's, like, you know, a dozen people gathered around it, and he seemed to be aware. He, like, looked at us, uh, uh, the box, and then at us, and then the box again, and then he said, uh, don't worry. It'll be, like, fish and loaves in here. And I was thinking, you better pull fish and loaves on that thing, because that ain't going to do it. And he didn't, if you're wondering. It stayed one pizza, and barely anyone could eat from it. And, it, and it, you know, it's little, I don't want to say anything bad about Little Caesars. Hot and ready, right? Hot and ready. <laughs> Abby's the only person I saw, she shook her head right away. Um, ordinarily, a small amount of food doesn't turn into catering for a stadium. Doesn't usually happen like that. So because of this, uh, some thinkers wrestle with this passage and reconciling it with whether it literally happened as the author described it or not. Is it something else? Is it Maybe it's metaphorical, some argue. Maybe it's an allegory. Maybe it's meant to be purely symbolic. Some argue that what really happened is that the generosity of the disciples stirred the generosity of the crowd and everyone just basically shared what they had. So it was like a miraculous provision of food. The problem with that is that Matthew actually records leftovers from the original source of food. Um, so he seems to intend for us to read it as though it happened the way he's describing it. One scholar I read this week argued that maybe it could be a brief segue into apocalyptic literature, which is something that we don't have a modern equivalent for. And it's kind of like this symbolic story that foreshadows something called the Messianic Banquet, when Israel's king will have a feast with the people of God and the restored kingdom and all that. Um, and you're like, maybe <laughs> there's shades of that in there. Problem is, Matthew doesn't record it like that at all. So in response to this, one scholar I read wrote quite simply, the Christian faith is nothing if it is not supernaturalism. Meaning, it's a weird story, to be sure, but our entire worldview is based on the singular reality of an empty tomb, that a man who was very much dead is no longer dead. Not only is he alive, but he continues to speak and to act and to work in the world even now. So, 
I don't often care for uh, documentaries personally. I prefer fiction, but Abby likes documentaries, so sometimes we watch them together. Um, a while back, we, were, uh, we watched a couple of documentaries in a row, actually, about L. Ron Hubbard and the cult of Scientology. And, uh, you know, all documentaries, of course, this bears repeating, apparently, have an agenda, whether it's right or wrong. They set out to convince you in their two-hour runtime of something. Maybe sometimes they're right, maybe they're wrong. But these documentaries, uh, if they're even remotely well done, are usually very convincing. Um, And these were, they were effective in kind of skewering this really bizarre story of Scientology, which is already really strange without music and, you know, editing and all that. And Abby was like, man, these people are freaking nuts. She just kept saying through the whole thing, these people are freaking nuts. And uh, L. Ron is freaking nuts. What's up with this guy? And it did, it did seem that way. Um, but I, you know, I reminded her as we were sitting there and laughing, hey, look at these crazy people. They're, they're so crazy. We're not. Um, <laughs> I was like, actually, we believe some crazy sounding stuff. And I was like, imagine someone with absolutely zero framework whatsoever for Jesus and church and Christianity and wandering in here on a Sunday. And there's like people with their hands in the air and eyes closed singing and saying, oh, hold on, God's talking to me. And then, and all right, now let's all break up and go eat flesh and drink blood. And oh, and here's coffee. Hey, how you doing? You know, that kind of thing. You'd be like, this is, this is weird. This sure seems weird. So I sympathize with the skepticism toward miracles, honestly. They sound weird. But the way of Jesus is, quite frankly, a worldview that simply accepts miracles as a given, that God does, can, and often will work through the miraculous. But there's more here than just the miracle itself. Now, a bit of a preface, ordinarily... It's not a great idea to abstract biblical stories into modern life allegories. Meaning, you know, and this is the easiest example I could think of, uh, if someone reads like the story of David and Goliath and says like, this is an inspirational story about slaying giants in your life, like your budget or your marriage or, you know, whatever, then you're like, no, it isn't. Not even a little bit. Not even remotely connected to any of those things whatsoever. But... We think that Matthew is imbuing this story with layers of meaning. So we think Matthew's audience was built from a primarily Jewish readership. So as they read this story, their minds would be carried backward to stories from the Old Testament. Look at this one from 2 Kings. A man came from a cool-sounding place, name your kid that, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what Yahweh says. They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of Yahweh. Or, you know, a more obvious example than even this one is the story of Moses. If you know from Exodus, under whose leadership a multitude of Israelites received miraculous provision of manna or something like bread from heaven. They were in the desert or the wilderness, which is here. Matthew uses the exact same word to describe the place to which Jesus had retreated. So theologian Stanley Hauerwas uh, put it this way, the details of the feeding suggest that food and scripture, where their minds would have went with all these Old Testament stories, are inseparable. The five loaves of bread correspond to the five books of Moses, or the Torah, and the two fish represent the law and the prophets. And before you dismiss such a thing as reading too far into it, we actually realize 
And scholars agree that Matthew often makes use of numbers to trigger cues for his Jewish readers. So some scholars even argue that the 12 remaining baskets likely symbolize Jesus' ambition to restore the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus, in other words, is meant to be seen as the new Moses. But unlike Moses, Jesus isn't just a spokesperson for God. He performs the miracle himself. He provides bread for Israel, but not for ordinary sustenance alone. And there's a profound foreshadow here as well. Notice the language. It says, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. So by the time we arrive at the Lord's Supper in Matthew and, and what follows, we will see that the way Jesus truly provides for the world is in the breaking of his own body and the way he gives himself to his disciples and to the world. And remember, the audience receiving Matthew's story would have included a church that was already consistently practicing the Lord's Supper or communion. And notice in the story, the miracle is brought about through utilizing what's already there, even though it seems like nothing compared to the present need. Here's the way one scholar put it. The church learns from this story, bring them here to me means to give to Jesus everything we have in practical obedience, however insignificant that everything may seem to be. Doing what we can with what we have is a wonderfully flexible instrument. Under Jesus' blessing, it can bring help the most creative kind. Now, for Matthew, this is an actual story about something that happened. As a biographer, he's recording it and he's passing it on to an audience. But he's up to more than that. Matthew wants his readers to find themselves in the story of Jesus so that they will be made to ask themselves again and again and again, what do I think about this man and his claims to be the king? And don't miss that in the story, the disciples present Jesus with their food and with it a possible forfeit of what they have to benefit someone else. And there's no screening, there's no evaluation of who most deserves the little bit of food they have. There's just bring what you have and hand it over. And that gesture of generosity born from poverty becomes something incredible. So for as long as I can remember um, being a part of church, working at a church, um, being here at Van City, easily the most common reason that I hear from those who claim to follow Jesus as to why they've yet to embody the generosity, radical generosity and giving is something like, well, I would, but I don't have enough yet, or I don't have enough right now. Um, I don't give to the church because I don't have enough to spare. I don't share what I have with others because there isn't enough of it in the first place. And maybe that's one of your hesitations in pursuing the way of radical generosity as well. Um, but if I may, with respect to that idea, let me offer two points. The first is this, and please listen to this. If you are not generous with a small amount, you will not be generous with a large amount. If you are unwilling to share out of very little, you will be unwilling to share out of excess. That will, I think, almost 100% of the time ring true. And the second point is this. Jesus can do incredible things with a very small amount. And it's not just finances or goods either, but your time, your thought life, your effort, your openness to the Spirit of God. 
Jesus can do incredible things with a small, even, I would argue, reluctant gesture of willingness. N.T. Wright puts it this way, you protest, I can't do it, I haven't got time, I haven't got energy, I haven't got the ability, all I have is. You say it's impossible, but you're prepared to give him the little you've got, if it'll be any good. Of course, it means you'll go hungry yourself, but by now, you're in too deep to stop. Once the power of Jesus' compassion has begun to catch you up in its flow, you can't stop. So in this story, it's so interesting that the crowds are pursuing Jesus while the disciples are the ones becoming impatient with him. And though Jesus is in pain, though he's grieved, um, he can't help but love the crowds. He can't help but recognize and validate their need. And though Jesus himself is hurting, he begins to heal others. And there's nothing here to indicate that these thousands of people were examined individually by Jesus for their moral eligibility to benefit from his healing or from the miracle dinner. From what we can tell, these aren't even Jesus' true followers. It stands to reason that among several thousand, there must have been skeptics and critics and doubters, but they show up. Maybe just for curiosity's sake, they show up. They want to see what all the fuss is about, and Jesus can't help but love them. There's no screening interviews mentioned. There's no test of faith. There's no prerequisites of any kind. In fact, the text only mentions one thing that precedes Jesus' compassion, and it's this. Jesus saw them. (laughs) That's it. And he can't help but love them. And remember, for a moment, the theological presupposition that we, as disciples of Jesus, bring to our understanding of this man, that though he was a man, he was also the living embodiment of the Creator God in human form. And not only that, but that Jesus reveals to us the clearest picture of what God is like a God that had been, until Jesus, entirely invisible. Meaning, in other words, we see God in Jesus, what God is like, how God thinks, what God does, which is helpful given the near incomprehensible nature of God. You know, God is the omnis. He's uh, omnipresent, meaning He's everywhere at once. He's omnipotent or all-powerful. He's omniscient, meaning he knows all of reality perfectly, all that. And to attempt to fathom even one of those things is above the human pay grade. But Jesus is God emptying himself in the language of the scriptures. He sets the omnis aside to be a human. So he's no longer omniscient. He has to learn and grow in the language of the scriptures. He has to ask questions and figure things out. He's no longer omnipresent. If you didn't get that from the story, he stays in one place at one time, spatially located. He's no longer omnipotent. He gets tired. He gets hungry. He gets sad. He, gets, he even dies, if you know the story. But Jesus does not put aside God's personality or God's character. In fact, he emphasizes them. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of God's very being. Now, I am, on my best day, 
a decent dad. Flawed, certainly, but I'm trying. So when I'm in the pit of despair, if my son or daughter come to me in need, I will rise to meet that need as best as I can. Of course, I have to rise above my own selfishness or laziness or self-obsession or pain to do so, but I can do it by the grace of God. Now, your heavenly Father, on the other hand, is not impeded by selfishness or laziness. And though he does experience uh, emotion to a degree that you and I can't comprehend, his innate baseline disposition is compassion for you, concern for you, the desire to heal you. And this is precisely why Jesus is constantly on about approaching God as if we are little kids and God is the good dad. You, the reader, are meant to see in this story that Jesus has time for you. Jesus sees you, and he can't help but love you. No screening, no prerequisite. He sees you, and he is filled with compassion. With all your garbage and all your screwing up and your skepticism or doubt or faithfulness or a mixed bag of all those things, he sees you, and he can't help but love you. And just as Jesus gives of himself to heal and to provide for those for whom he had compassion, he will, in the story, do the same for you, even to the point of death. Like the bread, Jesus will be broken, and he will be given to those for whom God has compassion. That's what God is like. So the invitation to give of yourself is not some kind of like guilt-laden, burdensome rule that God brandishes to remind you of how you're not doing enough. You should be more generous. The invitation to give, even from a place of very little, is an invitation to enter the compassion of Jesus and to know him better and to know his heart and the way that he understands not only the world around you and the people in it, but the way he understands you. That even amongst the crowds, Jesus recognizes your need and your hunger, and it fills him with compassion. And that he has provided for the deep hunger of our souls, that universal human ache for something more, something beyond ourselves. And to meet that need, Jesus was taken and broken and given to his disciples and to the world in a gesture of radical, miraculous provision upon the love of a compassionate Father in heaven. So we're the disciples in the story, you know, we're the practical ones, the impatient ones, reluctantly willing to hand over a little bit, I guess, but we're also the crowds in the story. We're needy and oblivious, our hands outstretched in anticipation. Wake up, Dada, wake up. And Jesus, he's Jesus, he's the king, kind in the face of impatience, willing and able to do much with very little, filled with compassion, eager to give more than we thought possible. So may we remember that when we go to him in prayer. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. You can connect with us, find more teachings and resources from Van City at www.vancity.church. You can also support us financially at vancity.church/give.